Well, thank you so much for uh, your words of uh, welcome. Uh, if you have a Bible with you uh, or next to you, turn with me to the passage that we uh, read together, uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter 8. Uh, it's a great uh, delight for me to be here uh, on this occasion. Uh, Decker to me was a record company. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what I was letting myself um, in for. Uh, but I was given a, a, a brief, I was given a title. Uh, I was to speak on the topic, um, Do It Again, uh, which upon uh, inquiry I learned um, that I was to speak on revival, um, God's great and mighty and powerful acts, His outpourings of the Spirit in days uh, gone by, and the longing of our hearts that that would occur uh, again. And I'm sure that all of you who love the gospel and love uh, the Lord Jesus Christ can concur uh, with that prayer that God would uh, revive His work uh, and that we might see uh, the extraordinary uh, statistics uh, that David has just cited from uh, the 19th century and Robert Murray McShane when 3,000 out of 4,000 uh, belonged to uh, what appears to have been gospel-believing, preaching um, churches. Now, the way I want to do that this evening is to take us back two and a half thousand years ago to the time of Nehemiah. Uh, there's no way around this. I've got to spend just a minute or a minute and a half uh, giving you at least a context, a historical uh, context. Uh, so forgive me just uh, for a second or two while I just pinpoint uh, this in the period of history that it occurs. Uh, we are exactly at the year 445 B.C. The people of God have been in exile in Babylon. Uh, that began roughly around the year 605, 604, 601 B.C., all the way down to 587 B.C., when Jerusalem uh, was, was, was sacked, the temple in Jerusalem uh, was destroyed, and uh, after successive uh, waves, many of the young and intelligent uh, men uh, in Jerusalem and its environs were taken into uh, captivity in Babylon. Among them, of course, uh, would be Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and uh, Abednego and folks of that nature. They would be in captivity uh, for 70 years. Uh, it would end uh, at about 537 BC when Babylon, and when you think of Babylon, think of Iraq perhaps. And when Babylon would give way to the new emerging empire uh, of uh, the uh, 5th century B.C., which is Persia, and when you think of Persia, you think perhaps of Iran, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, issues 
the decree for the people of God to return from exile and to begin uh, over again successive waves back to um, Jerusalem. It began with men like Zerubbabel and Jeshua, if you remember your Old Testament history. Uh, for about 15 years or so, nothing much happened in Jerusalem. One of the prophecies of the Old Testament is the prophecy of Haggai. Haggai uh, is at this period of history, and he castigates uh, the people of God because they are living in fine paneled, sealed houses when the temple of God is still in ruins. They're looking after themselves, but they're abandoning the kingdom of God. And Ezra, um, the prophet Ezra, the priest Ezra, uh, comes back at about 520 BC, and over the next four to five years, there is the rebuilding of the temple. That's usually dated at its completion at about 516 um, BC. And then you go forward another 60 or so years to 445 BC to the time of Nehemiah, which is where we are. Right? You've got all that sorted out in your heads, that, that quick summary of Old Testament history. We're at the point where Nehemiah has come back, and you all remember, of course, the main task of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a civil servant. Uh, he was a politician. Uh, he was an administrator. He was a clerk of works. He was a civil engineer. Uh, but he was also a man of God and a man of prayer. And he was the man who was put in charge of rebuilding um, the walls of Jerusalem. By the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, the walls have just been completed. Uh, it was met with all kinds of opposition. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, these are some of the names uh, of uh, oppo opposers to the work of rebuilding uh, this wall. Now they're at the point where the wall is complete. The temple has been rebuilt. The people, the builders especially, and it's a wonderful period in the book of Nehemiah describing uh, how they built, you remember, with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Uh, and now they've, many of these builders, of course, would have lived in the city, but the majority of them, no doubt, lived outside of the city in nearby towns and villages. They have been sent home for a few days at the end of chapter 6, we, are, we read right at the end of chapter 6 um, that this occurs um, at a certain point. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 15, the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month. That is the sixth month. And now in chapter 8, we are uh, look at the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 7, when the seventh month had come. So we've gone from the 25th day of the sixth month to the first day of the seventh month, which is just a few days. Uh, they've gone home, and they have been summoned back to Jerusalem. Now, if you've got a Bible, just glance. We're not going to make any comment on it. Just glance at verse 66. The whole assembly together, they've taken a census. 
just of the men who had returned from Babylon, the whole assembly together was 42,360. That's a whole lot more than is in here tonight. 42,360. That's probably only a reference to the men, so you can double that for wives, and then, who knows, for the, the, the little bairns, the little children. And what Ezra has done is to send the men home for a few days' rest after finishing the building of the wall. And now, on the first day of the seventh month, a very important month in the Jewish calendar, we'll talk about that in a minute, they all assemble again in Jerusalem with, no doubt, the misses and the little bairns, right, the little children. Uh, so there, there might be as many as, who knows, 80,000, maybe 100,000 people uh, who have gathered now in um, Jerusalem. Uh, I want to look at this tonight from four perspectives. That's just the history. Four perspectives. The first is the occasion. The occasion. There was a sense of occasion, just as there is here tonight. There's a, this was a planned event. Um, Ezra planned it, that they would, they would gather. He, he told them to gather, and they did. And they came together in Jerusalem. But the second thing I want us to think about is the enthusiasm. Now, look at the passage with me. It, it, it says in verse 1, All the people gathered as one man. You, you understand the euphemism, as one man. There's a sense of unity. There's a sense of purpose. There's a sense of direction. There's a sense in which they know who they are and why they are here. This is not a haphazard gathering for who knows what. They've, they've gathered together and they've gathered as, as one man. There's a, there's a unity here. Just as there is tonight, there's more that unites us in the gospel than divides us. There are some significant things that probably divide us uh, tonight, and on another occasion it would be interesting to find out what that would be, but tonight we've gathered together for the purposes of saying we all believe the gospel. Uh, the gospel of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. Uh, the gospel of in Christ uh, alone, that marvelous town and Getty uh, hymn that we've just sung together um, just now. That's what unites us. We are, we are united in the answer to the question, how can a man or woman be saved? Now, politically, we may be right across the board. I'm pretty sure we are. But the marvelous thing about the gospel is that it transcends all of that. Because there is more that unites us than divides us. They gathered together as, as one man. Now notice in verses 4 and 5, 
Ezra, and he has a whole team of, of preachers, teachers along with him, and sorry for giving you a passage with these, these difficult Jewish names to read. I was delighted when I realized I wasn't going to have to read Nehemiah <laughs> chapter 8 tonight. But in verses 4 and 5, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. Yes, a wooden platform. And twice we read that he stood above the people. You see that in verse 5? He was above the people, and he opened it all. Uh, the, the people's, uh, and as he opened it, all the people stood. He's on, he's on a platform. There's a pulpit. There's, there's some architectural device here, not simply for the purposes of acoustics. You know, for acoustical purposes, it, it, it makes sense in physics for me to be standing a few feet higher so that my voice can project to those in the back and can project to those who are up in the balcony. But it was also for the purposes that Ezra could be seen. But it was not, do you understand, it was not, this is Ezra's day. It was not to draw attention simply to Ezra. Now, Ezra, Ezra's the vehicle. Ezra's the instrument through which something extraordinary and powerful is about to occur. You notice in verse 6 that this occasion is surrounded by what I might call the paraphernalia of corporate worship. In verse 6 you read that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. There is this, this dialogical aspect of worship. There is this responsive element of worship. This isn't just something that Ezra does, that the people are involved in this. They're saying amen. And you know what amen means? Amen in Hebrew means to be firm, which comes to mean, I believe this. It is true. This, this, is, a, this is a statement of my belief. I concur with this. That's why it's important, and I wish we could reintroduce it. It's terribly important for the congregation to say audibly, Amen. In a, in a, in a worship service, when, when the, the minister or someone else is leading in prayer, it's important for us all to say, Amen. It's not that person's prayer. It's our prayer. This isn't individual worship. This isn't private worship. This is corporate worship. This is the unity of the people of God gathered together as one man with one purpose, with a single goal to give praise and worship to God. We're all involved in this. This is a statement of objective reality. This isn't just my truth and you've got your truth. We're not postmodernists. We're all saying, we're all concurring. 
This is the objective truth, and I am concurring with it. And there's this paraphernalia of, of, of worship. There's involvement here. There's no sleepy eyes here. No one dozing off. There's no one falling from the balcony as happened under Paul's ministry. They're involved. They're engaged. That which is about to occur, it's something that they're involved in. And there's, there's a measure of attentiveness and, in, and enthusiasm. And what occurs, of course, is that Ezra, verse 2, brought the law before the assembly. Now, you have to put yourself in the Old Testament because the law was a symbol for the first five books of the Old Testament. This is a period when most of the Old Testament hadn't, hadn't been written and certainly hadn't been canonized as, as the Old Testament as we know it. And this reference to the law is probably a reference not just to the book of Deuteronomy, but a reference to the first five books of the Old Testament. The bedrock of, of Jewish belief. And he's, he's come for the purposes of, of reading the law. Now, that's, that's what occurred. It it occurred from morning until noon. I don't know how long that was. You know, morning till noon sounds to me like several hours. Imagine that. He read the law. I don't, I don't know. He read it over many days. I, I don't know whether he managed to read the whole of the Pentateuch. Some commentators, scholars who've looked into this in considerable depth, insist that that is what occurred. Ezra read the entirety of the first five books of the Old Testament. And worse than that, the people had to stand for the reading of Scripture. Now, there are certain traditions that still employ um, that mode that when the Bible is read, everybody stands. Um, I, I don't think that's the law of the Medes and Persians. There are examples in the Bible. Baruch, for example, sat to read the, the Word of God. So it's not the, a law of the Medes and Persians. But this was a sense of occasion. And it was, it was their way of saying we, we reverence the Word of God. We reverence the Bible. Now, we're not, we're not Bible worshipers. You understand that? That's, that's what liberals say about us. You know, you're... Your Bible worshipers. No, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But what is written in the Bible, every jot and tittle of it from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture, and when Paul wrote that, he was talking about the Old Testament, all Scripture is given by the out-breathing of God. It is the product of the breath of Almighty God. The Bible is what God intends it to be. Jesus said the Scriptures cannot be broken. It, it cannot be torn apart. Do you know, my friends, when you're having doubts about the Bible, every now and then I have doubts about the Bible, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, I teach at a seminary. I have to read stuff that's, that's just mind-boggling. And every now and 
then it gets under your skin. I, I, I come across issues that I have no answer for. And I always revert to the same place. I want to believe what Jesus believed. That's the safest place to be tonight, to believe what Jesus believed. And Jesus believed that the Bible was God's Word. It was God's infallible, inerrant Word. I want to be where Jesus was. I want to stand under His shadow. If it was good enough for Jesus, I know that sounds trite. I know that sounds simplistic. But if it was good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. I may not have the answers. I may have to rely on the research of others to get the answers that I'm looking for. But all Scripture is the product of God's outbreathing. And when Ezra read the first five books of the Old Testament, the people, the people stood for hours. Now, I was given half an hour. And I'm going to try my level best to keep to that. I'll try and make that a contract and just speak to you for half an hour. But let's not find ourselves, friends, brothers, sisters, let's not find ourselves complaining about the worship service or about the reading of the Scriptures. Because this is God's Word. What's more important? Is there anything more important? We can, we can sit for hours watching who knows what. Fill in the blank. But this was a, this isn't something that happened every day. This is not, this is not every Sunday. You don't stand for six hours every Sunday. This, this is revival. That's why we're looking at this passage. This is an extraordinary event. This is a, a time in history, in space and time. This actually happened. When God came down and there are thousands and thousands of people and they're standing as Ezra is reading the Bible. He's reading the law of Moses. Now there's a third thing here and that is exposition. There's, there's an occasion and there's this, this enthusiasm and there's, there's exposition. Look at verse 8. They, they read. Now, it's gone into the plural. You know, this is, wasn't just Ezra because Ezra probably had a sore throat. Right? So that's why all these complicated names are mentioned. There, were, there was a band of them. This was team ministry. I serve in a church where there are nine ministers. Right? It's, it's called team ministry. And that's, I think, what you've got here. You've got Ezra, but you've got others with him. And they are reading too. Maybe because there are thousands of people, they've broken up into little groups. And maybe one is reading to this group here and another is reading to that group there. But notice in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. Now, on another time and another occasion, I, 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 would, I would go off on a tangent about the need to read the Bible clearly. And, and this is where I want to go tonight, they 
gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, do you understand what that is? That's preaching. That's, that's exposition. That's explaining the Bible so that people can understand it. Times haven't changed. Now, we believe as Protestants that the Bible should be given to everybody. It, it's not to be held by an elitist group. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe the truth is given to those of superior intelligence and superior learning. No, we believe the Bible should be given into the hands of everybody. You understand, people died for that. I mean, literally were burnt at the stake for that principle so that you could have a Bible in your hands tonight. William Tyndall was burnt for that principle so that you could have a Bible in your hands. Oh, my dear friends, treasure it. Treasure it. It is the most precious thing that you have because it, it shows you Jesus. It, it reveals to you the gospel. So there's, there's preaching. There's this, there's this exposition. Well, there's more than that. Actually, there was translation. Because at this period in history, when they come back from Babylon, they're no longer speaking Hebrew. They're actually speaking Aramaic, which looks like Hebrew, but it's not Hebrew. I did a course on Aramaic once, and it's a tough language to learn. And these men are, first of all, translating the Hebrew text into the day-to-day -day Aramaic that the people of God are now speaking. And they're giving, they're giving the sense. You know, in the 17th century, at the time when um, Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Anglicans uh, met together at the Westminster Assembly to produce the Westminster Confession and the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism, one of the things that they produced was the Directory for the Public Worship um, of God. And in that Directory for the Public Worship of God, they cite this passage, and they cite this actual verse, verse 8 of Nehemiah 8, because that is what preaching is all about. You, you see, it's not about telling stories. It's, it's not about me. It's not about my family. It's not about the weird things that my children do. It's about explaining the Word of God. That's what happened on this day. And there are men and women and all who could understand, and that means all the youth were there. There's no, there's no private ceremony of fish swallowing at the fish gate in Jerusalem on this day. There was a fish gate, right? There's a gate called the fish gate in Jerusalem. They're there to hear the word of God being read and explained. Now, you understand that if revival comes, that's what's going to happen. I mean, that's what's going to happen. 
He will give you such a thirst for the scriptures. There's a dear, dear man sitting down there who I haven't seen in 20 years. And you'll forgive me for using you as an illustration again. He's a, he's a dear, dear saint in the Lord. And I was on a trip leading a tour to Israel in 1992. And uh, he's a free church, die-hard <laughs> minister who thinks they speak Gaelic in heaven. <laughs> and woe betide you if you don't think that's true. And we came within sight. Imagine this. He's, he's, been, he's a psalm singer. He loves the book of Psalms. No one loves the book of Psalms more than, than the free church. And for the first time in his life, I think, this is the first time he's been in Israel. The first time in his life, we're on the bus, we're in northern Galilee, and we come within sight of Mount Hermon. And the bus stops, and he stands on his feet in the bus, and he closes his eyes, and he begins to sing in a Gallic tune that just gripped at your heart. You know, it's, it's one of these tear-jerking tunes. And he's singing Psalm 133 because it references Mount Hermon, the dew that falls from Mount Hermon. And he's seeing it for the first time in his life. And what does he think about? The Word of God. He thinks about the Bible. I think, I think it's true that that psalm that you knew and loved for X number of years suddenly became even more meaningful that day. Now that's what happens in revival. It's what happened on this day. Thousands and thousands of people are gathered together and they're enraptured by What's taking place? And what is taking place? God's Word is coming home to them. God's Word is coming alive to them. Young people, I want with all my heart that you will become men and women who love the Bible. Who love, don't be ashamed of carrying a Bible. I'm all for pew Bibles and so on. Um, but you need to have your own Bible. And, uh, and I have a brand new Bible. And the reason this is, I think, the third time I've actually used this Bible. Because, well, it's too long a story. But, but I was on a plane and they left my suitcase out in the rain and the Bible was ruined. And I made them pay for a new one. <laughs> I did. I was absolutely insistent they would pay for a brand new Bible for me. And I don't like it because it's unused. You know, you get to know your Bible. I, I love to see a well-worn Bible, the most beautiful music that you can ever hear in a worship service are the pages of the Bible being turned. Now that's revival, my friends. Revival isn't just a warm feeling and a glow in my heart. 
There are drugs that can do that. <laughs> Coffee does that for me in the morning. <laughs> Revival comes when, when God's Word suddenly, suddenly comes home. And I, I, I understand it. And I see it as what it is, objective truth from God delivered to me. It's a, it's a letter signed by Jesus addressed to me. That's what the Bible is. Now you notice, you notice in the fourth place that there are certain results. And there are lots of them. Some of them I won't have time to speak about. You notice in verse 9, one of the results is that they began to weep. Actually, actually, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. This was a day of rejoicing, right? But what happens when, when you really begin to understand the Bible? I was, I was telling folks, oh, you know, my body clock is all out of sorts. I don't even know when. It was. I guess it was yesterday. And... Um, I grew up in a home where, where there was no Bible. I, I never went to church. The first time I went to church was when I was 18. I was a, a sophomore. No, that's in America. I was a first-year student at university. I'd never read the Bible. I couldn't care less about it. Until I picked up, well, it was given to me by my best friend, John Stott's Basic Christianity. And it, I'll never forget it. The reference that John Stott made to Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden. Now, I was weary and heavy laden for the reason that, like many of you can testify, my family was breaking apart. I was a product of a teenage dysfunctional family. My parents were getting a divorce, and, and I was weary and heavy laden emotionally that way. That was, that was the trigger. But when I began to read the Bible for the very first time, I realized what being weary and heavy laden actually meant. I was a sinner. I had broken God's law. I had used Jesus' name throughout my teenage years as a swear word. Every day of my teenage life, I'm almost certain I used the name of Jesus as a swear word. And they wept. My friends, do you know what that is? For the word of God to exegete your hearts. You think you're reading the Bible, but actually the Bible is reading you. You ever had that feeling when you're reading the Bible? This, this Bible knows me knows my heart. It knows my innermost thoughts. And it breaks you down. It brings you down to the ground. But that was not for this day. This, this was not a day for, for weeping. This was, this was a day for rejoicing in the gospel, in the truth of God, in the truth of salvation. Because the second thing I want us to see here as way of result is this very famous text in verse 10. Do not be grieved for, and how many of you don't know this text, for the joy 
of the Lord is your strength. You, you understand that? Even, even from a, a worldly point of view, you understand that. When you're depressed, you have no strength. When you're down in the dumps, you have no strength. You have no energy. You don't want to get up in the morning. You, want to, you don't want to face people. When, when, you're, when you're joyful, you're, you're full of ambition and strength, even from a worldly point of view. Now imagine, imagine what happens when, when you experience true joy. True joy. You experience true joy when you are assured that you are loved. Some of you are so bent out of shape because you weren't loved as a child. It affects you to this day. It has distorted your personality to this day. And the gospel comes. The word of Christ comes and says, I have loved you before the world was made. Before the world was made, he loved me. How do I know that he loves me? Listen, listen. He that spared not his own son. He that spared not his own son. I have one son. I would spare him anything. God did not spare his son. He gave him up for us all. He, he delivered him up for us all. He gave him to mocking and abuse and to be spat upon and to be reviled by the world. He gave him to crucifixion. He gave him to wrath and darkness so that, he, so that he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did not spare his own son. He only had one son. And he gave him for sinners like you and me. Joy comes when you know that you are loved. Loved to a degree that you cannot even put it into words. Some of you have recently fallen in love. A couple of you have just got married. Can focus on Bilia. You know the joy that comes when you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and prophet and priest and king. Joy inexpressible and, and full of glory. A, a joy that comes from knowing that everything that happens to us happens by a divine plan. And even though we can't understand it, and even though terrible things may happen to us, we can say with, with Job, the Lord gave and 
the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, I may not be able to understand why he has done this, but it's not important that I understand. What's important is that he understands. And there's joy. A joy that no one can take away. A joy that the world cannot rob you of. A joy that the devil himself cannot take away from you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And on this day, God came down. And as the word of God was preached and explained, their hearts were filled with joy. I am, I am loved. I have been loved from all eternity. That there's there's a way of salvation for me, a guilty sinner, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But on that day of judgment, I will not hear, depart from me into everlasting fire. But come, come ye blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. There's joy. Lasting joy. Solid joy. A joy that strengthens. A joy that invigorates. Now one of the things that happened, and I don't have time to go into it, but one of the things that happened at the end of this chapter is they, they're in the seventh month of the year, and one of the things that happens at the beginning of the seventh month is the Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone loves the Feast of Tabernacles. It was like Harvest Thanksgiving. Children loved it. You know, you, you got to play uh, tents on the roof of the house. You know, you got these palm branches and stuff, and you, you, you spent the night out. You, 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 you camped out that night. The whole family did. You ate outside in the balcony. Everyone loves the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was celebrating the Exodus. You know, when they didn't have homes to live in, when they when they literally had to walk under the stars for 40 years. It was celebrating how God had saved them in the past. Now, bring that into the New Testament. We, we don't celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles because now we celebrate Jesus. And every thought of Jesus is precious. And invigorating. Now, my friends, this happened two and a half thousand years ago. And it has happened at the time of the Reformation. It, it happened in the 17th century. It happened in the 18th century. It happened in the 19th century. It has happened in the 20th century. One of the most astonishing things that has happened in the last few years is the phenomenal growth of the church in China. A story that we still don't know the full details of. You love Dundee. I have to say, I've never been in Dundee before. I, I knew it for making marmalade, which I now gather isn't made in Dundee anymore. What do you want to see for Dundee? 
What do you want to see, really, for Dundee? The longing that David referred to in McShane's part. How can I, how can I live when there are a thousand people who don't know Jesus? No. How can I live when there are tens of thousands, actually hundreds of thousands, who don't know Jesus? Oh, that, oh, that God would come down. Oh, that God would come down and revive his work. And in the midst of the years, make known once again his mercy. Would you, would you pray for that? Would you long for that? And perhaps in your own soul and in your own heart, just, just now, reflect a little bit of what took place on this day as you think about the gospel, as you think about Jesus, as you think about what God has done in Christ for sinners like you and me, that that joy, that joy would be like, yes, a city that is set upon a hill that cannot be hid. May God so, so grant it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the scriptures and for this uh, chapter in Nehemiah. Lord, do it again. Do it again, because you are able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. For Jesus' sake, amen.